Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. Now, turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 20. I'll be there in a minute. This morning, I got a word for you. There's no breakthrough without follow-through. Can you say that with me? There's no breakthrough without follow-through. Let's do that again. There's no breakthrough without follow-through. This morning, we're, as a church, we have these four basics that we organize ourselves around, and they each start with the letter E. Sometimes we call them the four E's. But the third basic that we have as a church is to equip disciple makers. And this morning's message is really exactly about that. It's just right in line with our third basic, to equip disciple makers. Now, you might wonder, well, what's a disciple? And a disciple, in a very simple way, is someone who follows Jesus. Somebody who says, Jesus Christ has got the word of life. Jesus Christ knows what he's talking about. And I'm going to imitate him, I'm going to emulate him, I'm going to learn from him about how to do life. That's a disciple. And to make someone who is a disciple who makes disciples, that's someone who can actually take the life that Jesus has given them and transfer that to someone else. And that's why our third basic is to equip disciple makers. Sometimes you can use the word mentor in exchange for the word disciple. Or a mentor, mentee, you know, because we don't usually, we don't use the word disciple really much in our culture, but we certainly are familiar with mentoring. And in a sense, that's really what discipling is it's mentoring someone else in the ways of Jesus. So if you want to think about it that way and that helps you today, that's great. But discipling or mentoring, it's a lot more than just information. It's not just, hey, fill in these blanks, take this class, read this book. It's life, transferring life. It's kind of like this. Uh, back in the beginning of October, a few weeks ago, my truck was out here in the parking lot and the battery died. And thank the Lord uh, that Armando was here doing drum lessons. So Armando, he pulls his car up, and I have a pair of jumper cables in my truck, and he pulls his car nose to nose with my truck and put them on his battery and on my battery and wait a few minutes, and my truck started right up. And I still haven't got a new battery. So, because I'm cheap, and as long as I have jumper cables, I meet new friends that way. You know, my car dies all over the place. But the thing is this, see, what, what happened was, his battery is alive, and my battery is dead. And so we transferred life from his battery into my battery. This is a picture of discipleship. It's life. The abundant life that Jesus has put in you, Jesus put abundant life in you, it's that abundant life being transferred into someone else. And you can't do discipleship from a distance. You can teach a class long distance. Sure, you know, we sign up on the internet and learn things long distance all the time. But discipleship, that's altogether different because you're talking about transferring this life 
into someone else. That's iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. That's life rubbing off on life. And this morning, we're talking about that specific. There's no breakthrough without follow-through. The breakthrough that Jesus gives to you is intended to be followed through and transferred to someone else. And I would propose to you that until that happens, you haven't experienced the fullness of the breakthrough that Jesus has for you. That the key to you experiencing the fullness of the breakthrough is when you see the same thing that you experienced being transferred to someone else. Now that brings us to the story of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a tragic story. We learn really from his negative example in a sense. And we're introduced to Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 18. And here's what it says about him back there. It says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given to Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. So this is how we are introduced to this man, Hezekiah. Hezekiah is one of the truly good guys. He, he's one of the kings who had a heart for God. He desired to obey God, and he led people to follow God. This is Hezekiah. Uh, uh, he's a holy man. He's a righteous man. He's a good man. However, Hezekiah ran into some trouble there was a cocktail of trouble that hit his life. And how many of you can relate to that? That no matter how good you are as a person, you know troubles are indiscriminate, right? Can I get an amen? You with me? Amen. Yeah, yeah. Trouble doesn't care if you had your devotions this morning. It really doesn't. Trouble doesn't give three hoots about whether or not you showed up to church or you're really walking with God. Right? We've all experienced that. Here's Hezekiah, good man, holy man, righteous man, and yet trouble hit. Two things happened to him. The first is this nation called Assyria. Everybody say Assyria. Assyria. Assyria attacked Jerusalem. The Assyrians were the bad boys of the ancient world. I mean, they were, the, the, the human atrocities that they committed were awful. And this Assyrian army laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. You know what laying siege is? It's basically surrounding the city so that you trap everybody inside the city walls and in essence, you starve them to death. And so all of the people in the city of Jerusalem, they're hungry. Their food's being rationed. Their water's being rationed. They are living under the shadow of death. On top of that, 2 Kings chapter 20 tells us this. Look at verse 1. In those days, in those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, 
This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Bad went to worse. Not only is the city of Jerusalem under siege, living under the shadow of death, but now Hezekiah himself is sick and it, he's going to die. This is bad, a bad day. And here's what Hezekiah does. He turns his face to the wall, prays to the Lord. Remember, Lord, remember, Lord, how I've walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion, and I've done what's good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Have you ever prayed a prayer like this? I have. I bet I've prayed this prayer a hundred times in my Christian life. God, what the heck? I'm a good God. I'm, I'm, I'm following you. I'm trying to do my, I mean, hey, I know I'm not perfect, but God, I'm, I'm doing my best here to follow after you. God, have you not prayed that prayer before? I've prayed that prayer. I'm just being honest. And Hezekiah is weeping as he prays this prayer. And the Bible tells us that God heard his prayer. Heard it quickly. Look what happens, verse 4. Before Isaiah had left the middle court. In other words, Isaiah hadn't even left the palace grounds yet. So he delivers this bad news to Hezekiah, and he starts to head out. He doesn't even get outside the palace grounds, and God speaks to him. And God says this, go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life. Hey, that's pretty cool. That God would actually say, hey, Hezekiah, you actually have 15 years. I wonder if he started counting at that moment. Start checking the calendar. I want to make sure I get the full 15 years. If you think about it, really that's what healing is, isn't it? Healing is more time. I'm asking for more time on earth. I'm asking for more time with my family, with my loved ones, with my, my life, with life here on earth. And when God answers that prayer of heal me, Lord, He's in essence giving you more time. And Hezekiah was given more time, specifically 15 years. And he says this, And I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Wow. So now God answers both of his prayers in one fell swoop. Not only are you going to be healed, Hezekiah, not only are you going to have 15 more years, Hezekiah, but I'm going to chase away your enemies and rescue the city from Assyria. Whew. The sentence of death has been lifted. You can almost sense the fresh air. The sun will come out tomorrow. There it is. It's shining. And Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem are relieved that God has set them free from this. Now, what would this do for you if you receive a new lease on life like this, a breakthrough? What does this do in you as a person? 
See, it seems like we have two opportunities before us in that moment. The first opportunity is I can take this and simply enjoy it for myself. I've got 15 years, man. Let's, let's, let's uh, figure out how much money I have and how I can spread that out for 15 years. And let's, let's tar- start the bucket list. And I'm going to do this and this and this, and I'm going to take care of that and that and that, and I'm going to go here and go there, and uh, this is what I'm going to do for my 15 years. Or I can say, you've given me this breakthrough, God. Now what can I do to ensure that others enjoy the same? Tragically, Hezekiah took the first option. The Bible goes on to tell us in verse 12, at that time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of Hezekiah's illness. Now, some of you Bible scholars, you've probably heard the name Babylon before. Babylon. Babylon. Are they friend or foe. They are foe. Babylon would eventually come and absolutely destroy Judah. And yet here, Hezekiah receives these envoys from Babylon, and look what he does. Hezekiah received the envoys and showed them all that was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, and the fine olive oil, his armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Talk about letting the fox in the hen house. It's exactly what he did. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did those men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came from Babylon. The prophet asked, and what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There's nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. Notice the difference When he was told that he was going to die, how did Hezekiah respond? He rolled over in his bed, faced the wall, and wept. And here he's told that the day's going to come when this entire kingdom's going to crumble and be taken captive by Babylon. And Hezekiah responds entirely differently, doesn't he? The word the Lord has spoken is good. Why? The Bible tells us why. Hezekiah replied, for he thought, look what he was thinking, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? Hezekiah was fat and sassy. I got 15 good years. I'm going to enjoy the comfort. It's going to be great. 
It's going to be a good ride for 15 years. After that, doesn't really matter what happens, does, does it? In fact, if you read on, you discover that in chapter 21, Hezekiah passes away, and then his son Manasseh takes the throne. And the Bible tells us in 21 verse 3 that Manasseh did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, Manasseh became one of the most wicked kings that they ever had. So bad, verse 3 says that Manasseh rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed. Now, now check this out. Here's what that is. These high places were pagan shrines. They were, they were pagan temples. They were, they were parts you know, set up all around the countryside to honor these false gods. All kinds of wicked things were taking place at these shrines. And Hezekiah worked to tear them down. He worked to cleanse the country from this filth that was going on. He worked hard to do that. He fought for that victory. And then after he dies, what happens? Manasseh goes around and rebuilds them all back up again. Let's make this personal. This is kind of like this in your life or mine. Let's say that you are an addict. Let's say you're an alcoholic. And you come to Christ and, you've been, and you fight hard for your recovery. You fight hard to be set free from that terrible addiction and you just and you discover freedom in Christ and the power that comes with that and the joy that comes with that and you're living that victory for years in your life and then your kid becomes an adult and becomes an alcoholic what happened you got the breakthrough but there was no follow-through your kid did what Manasseh did went around behind his dad and just rebuilt the high places. It's tragic. In fact, the Bible records, you can go on and read more, Manasseh actually was awful. He was so wicked, in fact, that it was because of his wickedness as the king, the Bible tells us, that God actually raised up Babylon to attack Judah and wipe them out. And in fact, the word that the Lord gave to Isaiah actually came true. Isaiah's very grandchildren, biological grandchildren, so made it two generations, they were ones who were taken captive into Babylon. Didn't take long, did it? But you see what happened? Hezekiah enjoys the breakthrough. He enjoys the victory. He enjoys the freedom. He enjoys all the, the, the benefits, the blessings that God poured out into his life. And all he did was keep it for himself and never bothered to transfer it to the next generation. Now listen, this message is not just talking about transferring from this generation to that generation. Certainly as moms and dads, as parents, this message applies to this. Christian parents, come on, the public school is not going to teach your kids about Jesus. Like that's your privilege. You get that, right? Like, it's, it's your privilege, it's your responsibility to transfer the life, the breakthrough that you've enjoyed with Jesus into the heart of your child. You catch that. It's, and and I, get that it's, I get that it's hard. My wife and I, we have three kids. We, we know. And it was, a, it was a, a real eye-opener many years ago when I realized, wow, okay, I can, I can teach my kids to obey. Like, I can teach my kids religion. I can teach them the Bible verses and all the right doctrines and so forth. But trans 
transferring this love that I have for Jesus, transferring the intimacy that I enjoy with Jesus to my children, that is an altogether different task. Christian mom, dad, have you not experienced the frustration of that sometimes? It's like, hey, I can, I'm bigger, stronger, louder, you know, I can certainly, I can certainly make them obey, and, and, and you should. I mean, you're the parent, so it's certainly appropriate to make your child obey. But then there's that transference of heart. How does that happen? See? Hezekiah failed in that transition. I don't want to fail in that transition as a parent. So this message is partly about that. But it's also, friends, we're at a, we're at a critical point in our own nation's history. You know that right now we have like community colleges teaching adulting classes. And on one hand, you say, well, that's a great idea. But on another hand, I say, but what happened to the adults in their lives? They're teaching kids, they're, they're teaching young adults like how to do basic stuff like cook a meal and, and iron your clothes and do your laundry and pay your bills and balance a checkbook. And like these are, these are things, where were the mom, where's your parents? Like isn't that a parent's job? Not the community college's job? I mean, it's kind of a cool idea, but... It just illustrates a failure, a, a failure to transfer from one to the next. You know, it's time, it's time for us, in a sense, as a nation to wake up and say, whoa, wait a second, if we're not careful here, we're going to lose the freedom that we enjoy as a nation because we've not taught the personal responsibility that goes with it. So on a national level, certainly this applies. On a church, it applies. On the church level, it applies, friends. Because the life that Jesus has given to you and me is meant to be transferred. If it's not, we're literally one generation away from extinction. The church of Jesus Christ, one generation away from extinction. And this has always been the plan of God. That this person has life, transfer it to this person who transfers it to this person who transfers it to this person. This, this really is the plan of God. It's, it's kind of the only plan he's got. It's not, it's not, hey, human race, let's sit down and teach a class on how to do this. No, it's life on life. Iron sharpening iron. You say, well, okay, how do I do that? Got it. I don't want to make the same mistake that Hezekiah did. How do I transfer this life? Well, Jesus shows us how. Can I get an amen for Jesus? <laughs> Jesus shows us how. Jesus did it quite well, in fact. But you understand Jesus is unorthodox in the way that he approached this. Here's what I mean. We can get a little, a little glimpse into Jesus' training method with his own 12 disciples by looking at these three Bible verses just side by side. The first one is Matthew 10.1. And you need to understand the timeline. This happened at the very beginning of his training with his disciples. He just calls his 12 guys. This is right in the very beginning of his training of these guys. And you see what he does? It says he called his 12 disciples to him. And then he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Jesus, what? So Jesus took a group of novices... And he gave them authority and power 
to cast out demons and heal sick bodies. Okay, Jesus, that's not how I would do it. Would you? Would you grant a group of novices authority and power? I wouldn't. No, here's what we do. We say, hey, okay, take this class, and then you got to take this class, and then you want to read this book, and then we're going to do this background check, and, and then maybe you'll be qualified to have the authority to do this work. And that's not at all how Jesus did it. He took a group of wetbacks and gave them authority to cast out demons and heal the sick and minister. Well, how did that go? Well, Luke records that a little while later, his disciples, these guys with this authority and this power, that an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Well, obviously that makes sense. If you give a bunch of novices that kind of authority, it's going to go to their heads. And it did. What's interesting is how Jesus responded to this. You know, you can see in the Gospels and the life of Jesus, there were times that he really rebuked his disciples pretty heavy. He really did. He laid it heavy on them. Like he rebuked them for their lack of faith. He really hammered them on that one. And he rebuked them for their fear. He did that too. But you know what you don't ever see Jesus rebuking his disciples for? Pride. In fact, this little scenario happened a few times in the time that they spent together. And each time that this argument came up, and it came up, they argued about this. And each time it came up, Jesus handled it slightly different, but basically he treated it the same. He used it as a teaching opportunity not to hammer them back down and rebuke them for pride, but rather to direct their attention to where it needs to go. So Jesus, they're arguing about who's greatest, and Jesus goes, hey, you see this kid? You kind of need to be like this kid. And then he moved on. Another time, they're arguing about who's the greatest, and Jesus goes, hey, you know in the kingdom, the last will be first, the first will be last, and the greatest one is the servant of all. Jesus did that kind of thing. He, he, so he didn't like rebuke them for thinking they're the greatest. He just trained them, directed them. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not defined by one's power and prestige. Greatness is defined by one's ability to serve. That's what Jesus did with his guys. So how did Jesus respond to this? These guys are arguing over who's greatest. You see what happens next then? In Luke chapter 10, verse 1, it opens up with this. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him. Okay, so let's take 12 guys who are complete novices, give them authority and power to go do great things, and then it goes to their heads. So what am I going to do? Let's get 72 more guys. Sounds like a great plan. That's Jesus' plan. Now, one thing we need to understand about this is that Jesus did not send these men out on their own. They were never lone operators they always operated under Jesus, under his care. And Jesus explained his leadership this way. 
In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, because I, Jesus said, I am gentle and humble of heart. When he says that he's gentle, it means that as powerful as Jesus is, he uses his power to serve his guys. And humble means that as great as Jesus is, he uses his position to serve his guys. Gentle and humble leadership uses its power and its position to elevate others and empower others. This is the example of Jesus. And Jesus sends them out under his gentle and humble leadership, and he was careful to challenge them, correct them, rebuke them along the way. And friends, this is the model of Jesus. Gentle and humble leadership, raising up people who don't know what they're doing, giving them authority and power to serve, working with them, and then challenging them along the way. Jesus is the master at on-the-job training, the master of it. And you see, this is his method for replacing yourself. This is his method for transferring life to life. Jesus is the life I'm the way, the truth, the life, he said. Jesus is the life. So what am I going to do? Let's get these 12 guys nice and close because you don't do this long distance, nice and close, so that my life can be transferred into them. And remember, after Jesus had passed away, after Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended back to heaven, remember one of the comments that the religious leaders made about these guys? They noted that they had been with Jesus. You guys are something. You're untrained, unschooled, and yet you've been with Jesus. You see, the life got transferred. Friends, there's no breakthrough without follow-through. The, the breakthrough that you've experienced in your life is not going to be fully realized until you take that and you share that with someone else. This, this is the heart of God. Can I just get personal for a moment? What this looks like practically. So listen. Ushers, greeters, life group leaders, grow zone teachers, kitchen people, hospitality people, property maintenance people, servant team, administrative people, worship team, audio-visual people, tech people, elders, deacons. Hey, if you don't replace yourself, who will? If you don't replace yourself, if, if, if who, who is with you in the journey? Receiving the life that Jesus has put in you. If you don't replace yourself, who will? Because if you don't replace yourself, what happens is this. You have a great time. The Lord blesses you in profound ways. 
and then you go off to heaven, and it's beautiful. And there's a hole left on planet Earth where you were. And in fact, the biblical record, Hezekiah's example, would suggest that if you don't replace yourself, there's not just a hole, it gets worse. It, it gets worse. It gets profoundly worse. In other words, friends, this, this is not a light message this morning. This is like a call from heaven. Friend, brother, sister in Christ, replace yourself. Don't do what you do alone. Do it with someone. Well, I'm just, I'm just raking leaves in the church backyard. Yeah, great. Get somebody else to come rake leaves with you. Well, I'm, I'm just passing out bulletins. Exactly. Get somebody to come and help pass out bulletins with you. Invite them. Come on in. Let's go. Let's do this together. See? See, Jesus gave us this principle. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me get to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and then, and then we'll kind of close with this. But this gets nuts and boltsy practical. 2 Timothy chapter 2. How do we make this transference? How does this happen? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. It says this. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. See that? This is exactly what we're talking about. The things that you've heard, the things that you've learned, entrust those to reliable people who will be qualified to teach others. You see the, the progression? He goes on to say, Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown unless by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. So these seven verses just give us kind of real practically some things that we actually can do in this process. I'm answering this question. Okay, Lord, you want me to replace myself. You want me to share the breakthrough with someone else. Great. How do I do that, God? How does this work? Okay. The first thing is, who are you looking for to share the breakthrough with? With whom will you share your breakthrough? And he answers that question in verse 2. You see what you're looking for? Someone who's reliable. I love that. Not somebody who's like super holy. Not somebody who's been to seminary. Not somebody who has a hundred Bible verses memorized. I love that. Just somebody who's reliable. I don't know. You got any reliable people you know? Reliable means that when they say they're going to show up, they show up. You know, Jesus, Jesus said this. He, he gave us this really important principle. He said, whoever's faithful in very little will be faithful in much. That very little is really important because sometimes we think, well, that's just, that's really not a big deal. You know, it's, 
It's only passing out programs on a Sunday morning. I'm sure Josie will find somebody else to do that. I don't have to show up for that. You know, it's, it's, only, a, it's only the nursery. I mean, last Sunday, there was only one person in the nursery, so it's, I bet if I don't come, it's okay. You know, it's, it's just worship team rehearsal. It doesn't really, we're gonna, it'll come together. It always comes together on Sunday morning, so I don't have to show up Wednesday night. It's okay. I got other things I gotta do. See? But Jesus says, if you're not faithful in the very little, what makes you think you'll be faithful in the much? We, we make this, we have this, we gotta change our thinking. A lot of us are waiting around for the big ship to come in, you know? I'm waiting around for, for my, for a, you know, for my one sermon that gets put on the website and suddenly I'm the most famous preacher in the world. Like I'm waiting for the big one, right? And the Lord's like, well, come on, be faithful in the little. Because when it comes down to it, when the lights turn off and the music shuts down, guess what? It comes down to you and one other. Simple. And he says, if you can't be trusted to show up on time and pass out a bulletin, you, you, you can't be trusted with anything else. This is the principle Jesus teaches. And so he says, the first thing you're looking for is someone who's reliable. Somebody that when you give them a, a small challenge, they do it. I've seen this in life group too. I'll throw this last example out. You know, sometimes in our life group, we'll, have a, we'll say, hey, between now and next week, we're going to read these two chapters. And then we show up next week and, hey, who all read the two chapters? Well, I don't know. I didn't. Da, 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 da. Reliable. The question is, are you really taking this seriously or not? See? And so what am I looking for? What are you looking for in terms of someone that you are called to transfer your life into, you're looking for somebody that's reliable, somebody that will actually show up when they say they're going to show up. They'll join you in the work of the ministry, see? And then that person becomes qualified. When you first read verse 2, it almost looks like you're looking for a reliable and a qualified person, but that's actually not the case. If you look at the grammar in that verse, the way that it's worded, you're finding a reliable person and making them qualified. That's what it's saying. You're actually qualifying that person to teach others. So then what kind of person am I supposed to be? That's these three word pictures. He gives you the, he gives you the soldier, the athlete, the farmer. Everybody say soldier, athlete, farmer. Soldier, athlete. Okay, I, now I caught you off guard. What are the three word pictures? Soldier, athlete, farmer, those are the three word pictures he gives to us. Those depict the kind of character that you and I need to have if we're going to transfer life into another. That's what they do. See, what a soldier is, is this. A soldier is two things, he tells us. A soldier obeys his commanding officer, so a soldier is in submission to authority. And the soldier stays focused on the mission. You realize that submission to authority is something, friends, that gets caught, not taught. It's something that is given by example and not just by a lesson. Um, moms, dads, this is a really important one. Because if you want your kid to submit to you, you need to demonstrate submission. If you're grumbling about your manager at work, if you're grumbling about your boss at work, 
If you grumble about the pastor always chafing against your leadership in your life that God's established in your life, don't be surprised when your kid chafes against your leadership. Because it gets caught, not just taught. You demonstrate submission to authority. And you see, that's why, that's the first quality that I need to have if I'm going to transfer this life into someone else, I need to be a man under authority, a man submitted. Because I've got to be growing, I've got to be learning, I've got to be receiving in order to give. And then the second part about that soldier is the soldier is focused on the mission. He says that. You're under authority, you're focused on the mission. You know, I find sometimes it's easy to get stuck in the weeds. All you got to do is watch the news one evening and then you're all wired up and upset. You know, I lose it every time, man. That's why I don't watch it anymore. I got to stay focused on the important things here. The mission. The mission, we're talking about transferring life. We're not talking about the election. We're talking about giving this life that Jesus has put in me to someone else. That's what we're talking about. And man, I got a short period of time. I want to make sure that that happens, that that transfer takes place in my kids and the people around me. I want them to catch my heart. You with me? Don't you? So let's stay focused on that. Let's not get distracted in the weeds. Stick to the mission. That's the first word picture, a soldier. The second word picture is of an athlete, the athlete who plays by the rules. We all know examples of professional athletes or Olympians, Olympians probably more clearly, Olympians that it's found that they cheated and then they lose their medals. They're you know, just taken away from there, certainly lose their position. Why? Oh, you're a great athlete, but you didn't play by the rules. You, did, you cheated and then you're, you lose your position. And he uses that in 2 Timothy 2. You and I are to be like that athlete. See, I, am, I, am I living a life of integrity, a life worth emulating? Is that the question? Hey, if somebody follows your example, let me ask you this question. If somebody follows your example, what does that look like? Just let you think about that. Because that's what we're talking about. Is see, the, the the athlete says plays by the rules. My life is my life worth emulating. The apostle Paul made this astounding statement. He says, "Hey, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ." I find that to be a really scary, freaky statement. I'm actually urging people. I'm saying, "Hey, go ahead, follow my example, as I follow the example of Jesus." So, so you want to see what this looks like? Here it is. That's what Paul's saying. Here's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Friends, can we say the same about you? I pray so. Here's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Because, you know, it's an old saying, but it's true. You might be the only Jesus that some people read. You might be the only Bible somebody reads. You're the, you might be the only version of Jesus somebody gets. Are they getting Jesus? Oh. See the challenge before us, friends? And then he says the farmer. The last picture is the farmer. Boy, farmers are hard working, aren't they? 
in our church in Pennsylvania where we were years ago, we had several farmers in our church. Wow, fresh, fresh respect for farmers. Hats off. Those guys, that's a 24-7 job right there. There's never a vacation for a farmer. Hard working. And what he says is, this, this, life where I, this, this life where I'm taking the breakthrough and I'm following through, I'm transferring the life that Jesus has given to someone else, this is going to take work, friends. Are you up for it? And the benefit is this. The first person, who's the first person on the farm who gets to pick that new apple off the tree, the first ripe apple or first ripe whatever it is, the farmer. See, you, my friend, what he's saying is, if you engage in this and you, and you commit yourself to replacing yourself, you get the benefit of that fruit. There's so much joy. That's what the Apostle John said in the book of 3 John, his letter, 3 John. He says, I have no greater joy. Look at this. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. Would you read that, read that out loud with me, would you? I have no greater joy than to hear my children walking in the truth. And he's talking about spiritual children there. Although you could certainly apply it as, uh, as biological children as well. But I have no greater joy. There really is nothing more exciting and more exhilarating than to see the light bulbs come on in someone else's eyes. When they start to understand the, the, the glory and the awesome gift that, that they have in Jesus, the awesome life that is theirs in Christ. There's just nothing like it. And friends, this is your, this is your privilege to share that with someone else. It's your privilege to take the breakthrough that you've received and follow through by giving it to someone else. You know, as a church, we gather together with the other churches in Manchester and we pray every month. You know, last Sunday we prayed at Trinity Covenant and it was really a great night last Sunday night. Really, their youth group did a great job leading worship. It was a good night. You know, every month we pray, we pray, Lord, give us Manchester. Give us Manchester. And sure, it's a great prayer, but you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking that really God wants to give, doesn't want to give Manchester to us. He wants to give us to Manchester. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.